with Decipher, and I'm joined today by Alex Delamotte with Sentinel One. Alex, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, great to be talking to you. Um, So we were just talking about the Net Gala that's coming up this weekend. Uh, That's very exciting. How did you get that idea? Ah, yes. So I've been working with several other friends, and we wanted to kind of bring back a theme that one of my friends had worked on, which was the Museum of Modern Malware at um, DEF CON in 2019, I believe. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to have another art exhibition that was hacker and technology themed art. So we ended up getting a space in New York City because two out of the four of us um, live there. Mm-hmm. And we're actually going to be doing it this coming weekend. So it's uh, very exciting. You know, uh, I think this is like the large, the first large party that any of us have planned like that. We're going to have about 400 people. Wow. And yeah, it's invite only, but um, we are definitely looking to add people who might not be already in the network. So mm-hmm. if anybody hears about this and is super interested in going to a hacker art party, do reach out and let me know. That's very exciting. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting idea, though. I feel like there is that just a big intersection between um, kind of cybersecurity and hacking and um, different types of art, whether that's music and or it's, you know, actual like art. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there's a lot that really could be explored there, you know? Yeah, a lot of our art is in digital form. Um, one of the recurring themes that I think is really fun is folks working with pop-ups and dialogue notification windows. So that's uh, something that we've used for a lot of our like branding too. Mm-hmm. So a lot of digital art, but we also have um, some photography and some physical mediums as well. So it's actually a pretty diverse set of artists. Very oh, cool. that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like a really fun event. Um, yeah. So, I mean... I am very curious, like taking a step back, kind of how you got into cybersecurity and um, you're at Sentinel Labs now, um, you know, starting from the beginning, really, what uh, piqued your interest about this field? Definitely. It's a great question. Um, I keep saying 10 years ago, but I've been saying that for a few years now. So about 10 (laughs) years ago, we'll say. Yeah, I was working um, help desk for an internet service provider, and I got pulled over to help with remediating the DNS changer malware, which had infected routers at the time, kind of a theme that we've suddenly seen um, reemerging in the 2020s, a lot of router infections. So Mm -hmm. I was pulled over to kind of let customers know what was happening. And I was like, wow, that's really fascinating because what happened was um, cyber criminal actors changed DNS router settings to redirect traffic to uh, get ad revenue. Mm -hmm. So they were injecting people's search results with ads, which is not a new technique, but what was novel was them using a router and hard coding their DNS servers to resolve things differently, which is actually pretty, pretty slick technique. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And that it's what's interesting is that was your like first close up uh, encounter with cybersecurity and you were literally kind of thrown into the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. At first I was like, what? Like, I didn't understand quite enough about how DNS worked to (laughs) understand the ramifications, but it did kind of prompt me to look into that. And it really helped me learn and grow. And when I got pulled over to that team, I was invited to a security conference called uh, MOG, 
the messaging malware mobile anti-abuse working group mm -hmm. and um I went there in 2011, I want to say, and like got to see some of the first talks on Android malware way back in the day. And I was just hooked. I knew this is what I'm going to be working in. What parts of cybersecurity did you specifically focus in on after that? I was actually very much a generalist. Um, I got pulled over to network ops for a while after that. And then mm -hmm. I went to a different job later working on um, a malware analysis sandbox because malware always stood out to me as particularly interesting. I really like tools and I like how people are using them. I feel like it's really just fascinating from the forensic perspective and trying to think about like, what are people thinking when they're coding something or when they're using it to do a specific function? So malware has always been where my heart is. So it's kind of interesting that I'm working with cloud now because like cloud has attack tools, but like, I think that it, you can call them malware because they're tools that are doing something that is not designed to be done by the customer. So it's just a much different world, though, because it's entirely living off the land. It's, um, I guess in that way, it's not so much different from contemporary malware that also likes to live off the land and blend in. But in the cloud, there's really no choice. Like stuff can't run in memory. You know, it's a it's, lot more limited. It's very different. Um, and I know like at Cloud Village, you talked a little bit about threat intelligence and how we can make kind of actionable decisions based on that. But part of that, too, was looking at threat intel in the cloud and, you know, how how are you seeing some of the big differences play out um, in that ecosystem? Something that I've noticed is that um, a lot of vendors really struggle to report the important things. Um, there's a lot of reporting of IOCs still, which, you know, indicators of compromise are perennial for threat intelligence reports. But when you're talking about things like hashes, like it's really not the most valuable thing in many cases. So I also worked at Amazon before I was at Sentinel One, and I was lucky enough to be on a very, it was um, on the Amazon retail side, but I was on a very cloud heavy team. Obviously we had a lot of services running in AWS. Um, so I got exposure to what teams need to actually operationalize threat intelligence. And what we were getting from many vendors was simply not enough. Like it wasn't enough detail on how actors were getting in. There isn't enough of um, what I like to say is there's uh, the defer report, mm -hmm. which, you know, does really good postmortems and incident response write-ups and just shows like how, for example, a ransomware family gets in, is delivered and how they execute and deploy it to all the different systems. We need something like that for cloud. We need to have the full kill chain, like seeing the the full intrusion from start to finish is really lacking in many cases. And it may not be the fault of vendors, you know, we're all working with limited information. So I don't fault, you know, researchers for not including some of the things that would have been more helpful, like um, which cloud APIs are used. That's really good for building detections, for example. So I think we're all working on it collectively. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that lack of visibility is is a really big challenge, especially on Absolutely. the actionable side too. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I um I hope that it'll get better. You know, I think that we need to find a way to um to enable sharing between both customers and cloud service providers, possibly in an anonymous way, in a way mm -hmm. that it isn't going to fully identify which cloud service provider was hit. Because it is um the unfortunate reality is like stock prices can be affected by market perception. So if we're affecting mar markets, like you can't really, 
reliably share information. And until we get over that hurdle of like, if you're sharing information about a cyber attack and it's like hurting your bottom line, you know, I can understand why that certain orgs might be a bit defensive about that. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that pretty clearly with the um, SEC cyber rules and everything that is playing out there. So that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest sticking points, too. I mean, maybe I'm ignorant, but that's just my perspective. You know, I would be, if I were a legal person in that position, I could empathize with their decision to not want to share information if it's going to hurt them like that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, you you made a point um, about kind of threat intelligence and how we can provide defenders with like actionable threat intelligence. And that stuck out to me because, I mean, I'm obviously coming from a different perspective here um, where I'm not so much in the weeds, but like when I write about campaigns or threat um, intel that is being published, like trying to um, disseminate that and like make it more understandable for a broader audience is really challenging and it's really difficult um, kind of translating some of those more technical terms. Um, So that really kind of struck a chord with me, just being able to take these really technical concepts and being able to kind of pop out like what matters or what can be done or why does this matter for a CISO or like red team or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it is really important too. And um, it sounds like you have a lot of different audiences as well, which in my current role, I kind of think of my ideal audience, I guess, would be other security researchers because that's kind of what labs does. We write for the community and we're there to, you know, represent Sentinel one to the research community and build trust there. So my um my audience is usually other researchers, but I do want to include as much information as possible for operational teams, because I think that they're really the customer who's going to benefit at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And I know you talked that about how there's kind of a lot of challenges that go into tracking campaigns and threat actor TTPs, and there's a lot there, um, you know, for something that to be actionable for like an ops, you know, team or something or someone would need to like put it into action. Like, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what specifically is needed there? Yeah, so we need some kind of um, way for operational teams to identify this tool or activity like it, you know, even if they're not identifying this exact campaign and they find some similar badness using the same technique, that's still valuable. You know, you're finding badness. So I think it's important not to get hung up on um, threat actor tracking alone. Um, You want to be sure that you're tracking badness, regardless of who it is or their motivation. I know attribution matters, but at the same time, um, especially in the cloud side, it's really hard to conclusively do that. So I think just providing stuff that people can use to identify badness, which um, again, like I am, like uh, the order of operations for like I am and identity activities, which APIs are called and in which order and um, establishing persistence. That's one that I really like to highlight because um, for example, in AWS, it's like, it's pretty obvious when people are establishing persistence through an administrator profile. Mm -hmm. Like you see a new profile, you see a new user created and then you see a new administrator access profile attached to it. So it's a very like set flow of things that I think would uh, be fairly easy to alert on for a defending team. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I, and there are other ones though. I I do feel like threat actors are getting uh, better at kind of hiding their tracks and like you know using living off the land or like other tactics too. Definitely, yeah. Things are getting harder. I think for both defenders and attackers because security tools are getting more mature. There's a lot more automation that's actually successful. I don't think people are being autom- automated out of a job yet, but I do think that automation is helping defenders, you know, smooth their operations. So that makes it harder for attackers too. They're going to have to do things at either a bigger scale or change their techniques, which is going to cost them. It'll cost time, resources, you know. So it's getting harder for everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not just on the um you know, threat actors side, though, it sounds like defenders are kind of stepping up too and <laughs> making it harder to, um, you know, to hide or to attack systems in the first place. So, but when you, and so when you look at um, going back to kind of your points on actionable threat intelligence, um, you know, one thing that was interesting for me too, is you talked a little bit about having like the right context and like, you know, looking specifically at that. Um, and there's like a lot of different, uh, characteristics that come up in threat intelligence that might include like attribution or like, you know, naming conventions. And I know you talked a little bit about those types of things. I uh, would love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I know with regard to naming conventions, I really just wish that the whole industry could agree on one and that we don't have to reinvent them all the time. Um, I think it's you know, it's kind of nice and aspirational for threat actor naming conventions to be formulaic and to make sense, like a midnight blizzard. <laughs> but yeah. it's also like, if there's already a known name for a group, you don't need to reinvent it, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And every ops team I've been on has agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's tough. Yeah. Cause when, especially all throughout the cybersecurity space, like if you're, if you're a CISO presenting to like board of directors or something, how do you say like, you know, scattered spider has, you know, infiltrated our networks, things like that, <laughs> you know, but I do. Oh, yeah. I Some of them are fun. Them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I also do understand like why those exist, you know, just to try to, you know, you, you do need to pinpoint to an extent like these, uh, you know, clusters of activity or groups. Um, but, but also it, it's been spiraling, spiraling a little bit. So. Agreed. Yeah, I think it should stay out of branding. That's my personal opinion. If you want to track it internally as something, cool. You know, that's up to your team. But yeah, Yeah. if you're trying to push it on people outside the company, that's uh, where it gets chaotic. And you talk a little bit too about, um, you talked about using um, the cyber kill chain as um, a guide. I thought that was really interesting Um, in particular because, you know, I look at a lot of different reports and, you know, some reports have details on some phases of attacks, um, but sometimes you'll see because of that limited viewpoint or visibility that you were talking about earlier, like there might not be answers yet about, say, like, like the delivery vector or like, um, post-exploitation um, activity or something like that. What's your thoughts there? Like, what's what's going on with these types of reports? Just the limited visibility? Yeah, that's my biggest... Uh, that is uh, what I assume would be foremost in driving that, is lack of visibility. Um, 
So I am a huge fan of the Lockheed Cyber Kill Chain. I'm a little biased because um, when I worked in a previous threat research role, we actually filled out the kill chain for all of our reports. You know, not every phase would be in each one, mm-hmm. but it was something we got used to doing. And I think it really helped me kind of map just the structure of an attack and kind of how the report should flow too, in a way that makes sense. You know, it's, uh, it's logical because it's time-based in theory. It should be chronological. So it kind of gives some organization and helps structure the attack better. So I think um, I think it's valuable. And I don't know if everywhere has that, like the same insight where you want to be covering it. I think that MITRE ATT&CK got much bigger than the cyber kill chain. And it's a little messy. Like it's just, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's very hard to like remember if you're getting stuff from each uh, tactic, I believe. Mm-hmm in the MITRE yeah. attack system. Yeah. So it's hard to, it's hard to know whether you're getting something from each tactic. The, the cyber kill chain is a lot more compact. You know, I think there's only mm-hmm. like seven phases if I'm remembering right. Yeah. So yeah. it's a uh, less to remember and just easier to adhere to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, all right. Well, and, you know, finally, you know, we talked about this before, but like how threat intelligence is different in the cloud and, you know, the cloud's still evolving. There's a lot of kind of theoretical attacks there too. Um, what what are you seeing there specifically? Yeah. I don't know if it's just me or if maybe there's been kind of a, a lull, but I feel like I'm seeing fewer theoretical attacks reported this year uh, mm-hmm. compared to last year. So I'm really, that's kind of cool. Maybe it was low hanging fruit. Maybe there was just a lot to do. And some of that has been cleaned up. Um, I think as focus continues to move on to Azure as a cloud service provider, we're going to see a lot of really interesting things just because it is a little more Microsoft-like or Windows-like in structure. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's one to watch. Uh, But I do see a lot more good, actionable threat intel coming out for the cloud. So it's really cool. Um, I've seen really good work from the teams at uh, Datadog. They're really good at documenting API calls, uh, very good at detection engineering. You know, they have a a very mature team in that field. Mm -hmm. And um, our friends at Permiso, of course, do really good cloud security research. Um, We did joint research with them last year. So full disclosure, we really like them. You're at... um... Right now at Sentinel Labs, like what are you specifically working on? Like what's exciting to you? What are you seeing? So I've been working on a lot of conference submissions over the past month. I'm kind of like planning out where I want to talk for the year, which is like a very, I don't know, this is very structured and mature compared to like my usual self. So yeah. it's nice. I feel responsible. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm currently working on more um, more activity that's related to my recent report, SNS Sender. Um, I've seen a few more tools that are using SNS uh, to send spam SMS or text messages. It's like, it's really the worst field of acronyms or like, it's the worst, it's the worst category of acronyms because they sound so similar. SNS is Simple Notification Service, which is AWS's means of notifying when something happens on one service. They have a couple different ways it can be set up, like it could send emails, but in this case, they're sending text messages. Mm-hmm. So that's another field that I can t- that I would like to um, keep exploring because it's kind of underreported right now, but we know the attacks are happening in the wild because there's been some good research on postmortem from these tools. 
So I've got another one of those coming up soon. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've been tracking um, SNS Sender like for a while. And what's interesting about that is it shows how attackers are constantly like adopting these new tools and and tactics. Um, What were some of like the the takeaways from your latest research with that? I know you came out just last week or two weeks ago with, with something new there. Yeah, so it's been really interesting to learn that there's actually a lot of hurdles in place for people to be able to configure something like AWS to send text messages. There are federal regulations that require a certain level of know your customer. Mm -hmm. So I think that presents a barrier for people who are looking to come in from the outside. You know, maybe let's say um, an attacker who lives somewhere in a different part of the world, if they want to set up a U.S. phone number for sending text messages, they are going to face some hurdles. Mm -hmm. So it's reassuring to see that there are um, some guidelines and even regulations in place that make this a more difficult attack to conduct. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how you even start finding something like SNS Sender and some of these tools and tactics? Like what what goes into that from, from your perspective? So I am really big on looking for tools that are historical. Like I will dig on places where people are uploading files and try to siphon them in that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from there, we can then check it against our telemetry at Sentinel-1. So it's a really way, it's a really good way to surface novel stuff, um, novel threats. So that's my usual approach. Um, I think Virus Total is a really good standby for many researchers, including myself. But there's also Stairwell, who are good friends of our team, and they have um, a similar service. So love using those. That's great. Um, and when you're looking at you know these tools that attackers are using, like what kind of a, like what trends are you seeing there with what? they're specifically interested in right now? Like, are they into like more things surrounding persistence or like privilege escalation or, you know, data exfiltration, things like that? What are you seeing? That's a really good question. Since I've been diving on these um, SMS spamming tools, they are using it to send uh, phishing or smishing messages, if you will. So they have um, automations to read in a list of phone numbers, and then they'll read in um, message content and replace a keyword with a phishing URL from a different list. So it's all very automated. I think automation is a really big te- like trend. Yeah. And it's all very opportunistic. So that's something with cloud that I really hope to change the, the threat intel reporting. Um, there's a very limited uh, advanced cloud threat intel. Like we're not seeing cloud threat intel about APTs very often. Does Mm -hmm. that mean they're not in the cloud? I highly doubt it. Like I think they're probably there. We just need more visibility to report on it. But again, these tools are very opportunistic and they're using it to automate their attacks so they can do it at scale, which is very aligned with cloud to begin with. I think cloud services exist so that organizations can run workloads at scale. So it's very much neatly lined up and it's kind of interesting to see like threat actors see the same use cases as legitimate organizations in that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you, and when you're look thinking about organizations and thinking about these kind of cloud-based threats, um, what are, what are like the top security measures right now that you would recommend that, 
you know, companies take to kind of avoid some of these things, especially given that limited visibility and kind of the challenges we're facing there? Definitely. So keeping credentials away from public code repositories or anywhere else that they could be picked up is probably the biggest one, because if a threat actor is scanning something like Okay, we could say maybe an engineer at a company uploads code, including um, API keys and secrets to Pastebin or GitHub, any service where they're, you know, putting text or code from one place to another. That's where actors are going to um, pick up these credentials oftentimes. And another thing that's related to that would be securing services that do potentially expose credentials like um, ec2 or any kind of similar compute instance in the cloud often they have metadata services where an attacker if they are able to access the box could run some api queries to see which um, identity principles are there and potentially extract data that they can use to infiltrate the environment further so limiting access, um, keeping credentials out of exposed sources. And from there, I would say um, making sure the principle of least privilege is adhered to. Um, because if you have like an API key that's out there and it has like full domain admin effectively uh, in the cloud security equivalent, that's problematic if an actor gets it. They can do anything. And I see a lot of tools that are looking for um, it was the persistence thing I mentioned earlier, where tools look for keys that can generate a new user and then attach admin profile to that. So making sure that you limit who can create new users and also attaching certain policies like administrative access or other management functions. Limiting all of that is really going to be what keeps people safe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today to uh, talk a little bit about yourself and what you're seeing right now in the threat landscape. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me, Lindsay. It's been great awesome. chatting with you as always. You too. Thank you.